Hey everybody, it's Matt. First off, happy holidays. Whatever it is you celebrate or don't celebrate, I hope you're having a great few weeks here. Real quick programming note, we recorded this back around Thanksgiving, which you'll hear in the episode, but we wanted to hold it to this week in between Christmas and New Year's because we're going to run this episode both on our Some Like It Pop feed and over at Broadway Radio. If you don't subscribe to the Broadway Radio feed, please do so. We have a ridiculous amount of theater content over there at Broadway Radio. By the end of 2017, Our team over at Broadway Radio will have put out 367 podcast episodes. Yes, that's right. More than one a day. Many of those include me and my friend James Marino, as we do today on Broadway, Monday through Friday, almost every week we're taking this week off. So this episode will actually take the place of today on Broadway. But subscribe over there. Listen over there. And if you're hearing this on Broadway Radio... Also subscribe to Some Like It Pop. Jen and I will have our best of 2017 episode coming out in early January where we look back at all the great stuff that you might have missed and things that you really should catch up on. Until then, here's our episode. Welcome to Some Like It Pop, a Broadway World's pop culture podcast. I am Broadway World and Broadway Radio's Matt Timonini, and as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation Broadway World's Jennifer McHugh. Jen, happy Thanksgiving. And to you as well. We're on opposite sides of the country, but both in warm weather, just as the Pilgrims intended it to be. Um, you can follow Jen on Twitter at EponineQ, that's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q, and you can follow me at B-W-W-M-A-T-T, and you can follow both of us at S-L-I-P Podcast. Jen, we have a big old cornucopia of stuff to be thankful for and to discuss on this show. We will be talking about my recent trip to New York, including my first in-person experience with a little show near and dear to your heart and your arm maybe is it really close to your arm i don't know where the tattoo is Uh, but we will also bring our social media debate over recent superhero movies to the podcast airwaves and finally not the huge instead of closing the episode with a little show and tell instead we will share a few things that we are pop culture grateful for so jen over the last few months we've spent a lot of time talking about your Hamilton experiences with the first national tour sitting down for four months in Los Angeles. But now, finally, believe it or not, it is my turn uh, on my recent trip to New York City. I was there for five days, saw Hamilton, and we were in very close contact during that time. Um, I've talked about it on Broadway Radio if you want to hear a little bit more. But Jen, I know that you had tons of questions. We've talked a little bit about it already through text and stuff, but you had some very burning questions you wanted to know from my Hamilton experience. I did. I do believe I threatened you to text me at intermission. (laughs) I did. Yes. Yes, you did. There was definitely bodily harm threatened. Okay. Um, Well, I think my overall burning question is, you know, you've listened to the cast recording for all these years and you've heard me endlessly talk about it. Um, so my first question would be, what was your favorite moment on stage that you hadn't, hadn't really thought about while listening to the CD hmm. that when you saw it visually, you were like, Oh, that song, that is amazing. Well, uh, man, that's, that's a really hard question as I'm sure you can understand. Cause there's so much that goes on in the staging of the show that you have no way of knowing about when you only uh, uh, experience Hamilton through the album. There is so much depth and richness and nuance going on, but I have to say it's, it's the bullet. 
I, I really think that the bullet is um, fascinating. And you gave me a little Easter egg that I didn't know about that. Hopefully when I see the show again, I'll be able to follow a little bit more. Um, but that whole, I guess not just the bullet, but the whole final duel scene with the flashbacks and him kind of seeing his life flash before his eyes. Um, that was really powerful. That was really emotional. And um, I, I think that's something both from a staging standpoint and a dramatic standpoint that really hit me hard and had a lot of resonance there because um, it was done so well on both in the writing, both in the direction, the choreography and the performances. It's really, really epic and emotional and then of course i guess at this point we can spoil things a little bit since the show's been around for a while the gasp eliza's gasp at the end is pretty um out of nowhere because you feel like you know the epilogue so well from the album but you don't hear the gasp on the album and then to hear her do that at the end it i just got shivers you know on my arms just thinking about it even you know even though i got him the exact same way in the theater um so those two things very close to the end after you've had this big mountain of emotions pile on you i think those are the things if i had to pick that would be the things that surprised me the most that i wasn't anticipating either emotionally or dramatically from just the album itself well, that kind of bled into my uh, next question, which was what you just answered. I was going to ask you if there were any surprises that hadn't been spoiled for you, which yeah, I you know I was concerned about the bullet because people talk about it so much, and I knew that you had knew of it, but I didn't know if you knew exactly what we were referring to. And we, yeah, I mean, I understood. Obviously, you know, I'm I work twenty four seven pretty much in the Broadway community, so I knew Ariana Debose was the bullet. I knew that it had something to do with her. In the dual scene, like I, I understood the basic structural outline of it, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how that would be manifested on stage. And, you know, I purposely and we've talked about this. I purposely tried to avoid details. There's bootlegs around um, and they've been offered to me pretty high quality ones, but I've never I never watched them because I wanted to experience it for the first time in the theater, whether that was going to be in New York or in a tour or somewhere else. I wanted to see it for the first time. Obviously, I watched the, you know, when they did the opening number on the Emmy or on the uh, they did the opening number on the Grammys and I watched the documentary. So I've seen that stuff and they've released 10 minutes of B-roll when it first came to Broadway. So I've seen a lot of that. But other than that, there's a, all of the staging stuff was just so incredible that there were so many things that I feel like I didn't know and that made the experience so much more than just listening to the album, which is already awesome. Um, I mean, I, I like asking t- tough questions because people always ask me, but if you had to pick out one performer who stood out to you, that was just, I don't know. I, I don't want to keep using the word favorite, but yeah. really kind of, for lack of a better term, blew you away. Oh, uh, I see what you did there. Uh, I'm. Uh, this is an easy one for me. Uh, the answer is Daniel Breaker, who um, played Aaron Burr. Uh, Aaron, Daniel Breaker is a guy who has had this super interesting career. He first kind of came to prominence. He got a Tony nomination for Passing Strange. Then he was the donkey in Shrek the Musical. Um, then he did a pl- straight play about... Um, well, pornography. Um, and then he spent like three years both out of town and in New York in the Book of Mormon. And then he went from that to playing Aaron Burr. He's just had this super interesting career. And Jen, you and I have kind of talked about this off air and, and you kind of alluded to it in your questions that 
if the only experience you have with Hamilton is the album, you have this very pristine, perfect version of what the score sound like, sounds like because it's done in a studio. Everything's controlled for. They can take the best take. And they aren't really doing all of the acting on the album that they do on stage because they want to preserve the vocals and the music as best they can for the album. And this is not something different with Hamilton. This is true in almost every cast album. So you get a very different view of some of these characters when you just know it from the album. And to see all of the layers and the humor and the depth and the progression that Burr goes through, and in my case, I saw it with with Daniel Breaker. You've seen it with Joshua Henry and, of course, Leslie Odom Jr. And I assume they're similar, but probably have different you know takes on the character. But there was just it, it made so much more sense to me why Burr is the narrator. It made so much more sense to me why. You know, uh, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. won the Tony because if you just listen to the album, yeah, it's it's good. You get it. I, I understand the the singing's great, the parts cool, but there's so much more to it. So to me, Daniel Breaker was uh, phenomenal. I mean, absolutely amazing. With that in mind, I really like that you said that because I remember the first thing that jumped out at me when I saw Josh Henry is that he pronounced Leslie Odom Jr. on the album says, "I am I am inimitable." He accentuates mm-hmm. inimitable. And Joshua Henry says, I am inimitable. And I was mm. like, the first time I was like, okay, like, <laughs> all right. And that's it. obvious. And it was just yeah, so that's silly, obviously like, a so, conscious choice. Yeah, of course. But it's just, I love hearing the non people sing, like the non original cast sing it. I just love it. Yeah. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Absolutely. With that being said, uh, if could you pick out a favorite number? Oh man, I don't. Uh, oh, I don't know that I could. Um, um, hmm. Let me think. I this wouldn't be my favorite, but I did really enjoy you and Morton's take on the king. Uh, I think probably one because of his age. He's very different than Jonathan Groff, but still very very funny. So that was great. Um, you know, I think I liked. Ah, man, I don't know. I don't know that I can pick out one if I if I had to. One thing I'll say is. Hearing someone other than Lynn play Alexander Hamilton is very different. And, and Jen, I hope this doesn't offend you in me saying this. Lynn is not exactly the best vocalist in the world. I don't think he would he, he would quibble with anybody saying that. But I saw um, uh, Javon McFerrin. Is that, am I pronouncing his first name correctly? Yes. Okay. Javon McFerrin. So he was technically the, the, son, alter- the son of? The son of Bobby McFerrin. You know, as I use my body as an instrument and say, don't worry, be happy. Um <laughs> I saw him and he had a very Lynn quality to his voice. Like he sounded like Lynn, just an incredible singer. So it was really interesting to me to hear like what Lynn would have been if he would have merged um, with uh, Javi or somebody, you know, where you have this voice that sounds very similar to what you're accustomed to on the album, but it has a little bit more range, a little bit more richness. Um, So that was very interesting to me. Because it did sound familiar, but it was a different person. So I don't know that I can pick one song just because I feel like the whole thing just washed over me. Um, But that was an interesting experience to have something that sounded familiar, but a little bit better. The one thing I was dying to ask you was when you first watched the Tonys and they performed the Battle of Yorktown. Mm -hmm. and With no guns. 
Yeah. It was the day of the Orlando shooting, so they removed the guns. And when we had talked post-Tonys, you said that you were kind of underwhelmed by the performance. And I assured you that <laughs> when you saw it, contextually and with the guns, it makes a lot more sense and it is a lot more emotional. Yes. What are your thoughts now seeing it contextually? Well, I, I think the whole the whole that whole section of the show going from like guns and ships to you know the whole get get your right hand man back into immigrants we get the job done into battle of yorktown like the whole thing is is powerful i mean like that's probably one of my that if not my favorite section because that's not one song obviously but um that might be my favorite section of the show um so it definitely was incredible to you know I've spent so many years as either a theater director or a theater critic that I break these things down. I love the way that the ensemble switches from being British soldiers to being, you know, colonial soldiers and all of that with the passing of the coats. There's another moment that I'll talk about that I love from a stagecraft perspective. But um, yeah, that's that's a great section. You are absolutely right that seeing it, seeing I think seeing any scene out of context wouldn't do it justice because of how integrated and contextualized everything is everything builds on itself and what you get three quarters of the way through the show is not going to be the same if you don't see that first two quarters that that first half of the show so i yeah you're absolutely right with the guns in context it was very very powerful and and exciting like you don't get like legit exciting stuff in musicals all that often, unless it's some huge like tap number or, or somebody belting to the rafters. And that's not this, but it's still nonetheless invigorating and exciting. Um, Tell me the parts that you choked up at the most. Oh, um, choked up the most. I, I did tear up a, a couple times. Um, I think the easy answer is either Dear Theodosia or Quiet Uptown. Uh, but I don't know that that would be the most. I'm, as I've talked about before, I'm a very sentimental crier. And generally, that sentiment has to do with family. So to me, it was the stuff with Philip, probably. So I think that would probably be it, probably when. And I, don't, I honestly, I don't even know if it's when Philip dies. I think it might have been the stuff where. Um, I almost said Lynn, but uh, Alexander Hamilton is talking to Philip uh, Hamilton and kind of giving him advice and stuff like I think that might have been maybe not the most choked up because it's not necessarily an emotional scene but the one that surprised me the most emotionally because that's the kind of stuff that normally that normally gets me and I didn't anticipate that being something that you know got me teary-eyed Okay, so I've been talking about this for years. I've been raving about it. I tattooed myself. I cry every time I see it. So give me your final thoughts and um, after all this buildup, what your actual opinion is. Well, I think I I would be lying if I didn't say that I went in um, a little nervous. Just because anytime you hear about something and how it's the greatest thing ever – it's tough to ever live up to the expectations, especially when you don't see it for, I mean, this show's literally been playing in New York almost nonstop for what, three years now. Um, so it's been playing in New York for you know the off Broadway run. And then the two and a half years or whatever it is on Broadway. And then around the country, you hear so much about it. You just think, okay, is it really that good? Is it kind of like a little bit of Stockholm syndrome where it's really good and then people who see it feel like they have to outdo each other? That is obviously not the case here. 
it is so much more than the album, as as I said before. And the thing that really stood out to me was that it's more generally when you do a sung through show, whether it's Les Mis or Miss Saigon or Phantom or whatever, the music is the most important thing. And obviously the music in Hamilton is amazing. But to me, the thing that made it was the staging and whether that's the choreography with, you know, the actual dancing with from Andy Blankenbuehler or the stagecraft and the positioning and the thought from, uh, from, uh, from Tommy Kale, uh, that to me is what stole the show. And that's not to take anything away from, you know, Lynn's work, obviously, but I think that is the thing that really said, okay, this goes from being something that's really well written to being something that is revelatory and groundbreaking. So, I don't know that that necessarily answers your question, but to me, I don't know that I'll ever be as big a fan of anything as you are of Hamilton. I think that's kind of the way we're wired. Um, it's fair. But yeah, that's just who we are. But I would say that there is not a single thing in my experience with seeing this that I felt disappointed about. That is high praise, Lynn. I hope you take it to heart. <laughs> yeah, and I will say this little moment that kind of not took my breath away, but really kind of... I thought was really cool. There's the moment I think, and it, it's, it all gets kind of mixed together. But I think it's it's when George Washington sends the letter to get Hamilton back for the Battle of Yorktown. And Jen, correct me if I'm getting this wrong and mixing it up when it happens in the show. But they he writes a letter and then they pass it up around the catwalk down to Lynn. Is that the right time in the show? Am I thinking about this correctly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you see for a while that they do pass it up the stairs at a kind of a quick but normal pace. And then all of a sudden, the people up on the catwalk, you see them do this quick fan move where they pass it. And then all of a sudden, it comes down to Alexander's hand. And you realize about halfway through that fan move that they're not actually passing the note, except that everybody has a note. So when they're flipping through this fan motion and passing it to the next person, they've already got one in their hand. And it's so subtle. And I don't know that that's not a huge deal. But to me, again, from the directing critic standpoint, I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like that made me sit up. I actually think I said, ooh, or wow, or something. When ever, probably everybody else around me is like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Um, but the little things like that, those were the things that stood out to me. And maybe that's why I appreciate the staging and what Tommy and, and Andy did a little bit more. Uh, because you don't get the exposure to it as much as you do the music. Well, I can't say I am disappointed because I was nervous too. Because, you know, <laughs> that, that could have been a podcast ender right there. That would have been the <laughs> end of this show. We would never have talked again. And I did text you at intermission and said... It's all right, and then like, I think I immediately, yeah, I, he, then I did, he did, and then I immediately replied, "I'm ah, just kidding, it's amazing." So, um, I do feel like I have to talk about the fact that at the end of the show, they did the curtain call, and we'd gotten a couple of the Broadway Cares Equity Fights Aid speeches afterwards, which normally happen in the fall and in the spring. And yeah, we were- this this little minor detail, you <laughs> My- son of a bitch. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> um, yeah, so minor detail. So they kind of stop after the curtain call, and we're expecting. I don't know, James Monroe Eigelhart or Manny Gonzalez or Daniel Breaker to step up and do the speech. And instead, from stage right, out walks Lin-Manuel Miranda. And no clue, he'd been in Puerto Rico the night before, um, and he just said, I wanted to come out and thank you. It's because of what you guys do in buying tickets and supporting the show that we're able to do our Eduham performances and bring in New York City high school students to see the show for $10. So we really want to make sure that you know that we appreciate that. Um, and, and thank you for supporting the show 
have a good night. And then he walked off stage and everybody, and that was done. So it was just one of those things where you're like, wait, what did, did that just happen? And my mom who is, has become a huge Lin-Manuel Miranda fan, not necessarily because of Hamilton, but that's part of it, but because of his, um, his advocacy for Puerto Rico and all that stuff. She started following him on Twitter because of that. And obviously she knew we were going to see Hamilton when we were in town, but my mom was like, could not speak. Um, she was, I don't, she might've been in tears. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it was very cool. I mean, and Lynn and I go way back. I've met him before. I've got pictures with him. Uh, you know, so we're, we're old friends, but, um, you know, it was, it was very cool to kind of cap off the Hamilton experience to having seen him come out and, and thank the audience. And I had great seats. I was in row F. So it was a uh, very cool, got a really good picture of him. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, despite how it seems, that was not actually the only sh- show that you saw. So Correct. Um, let's start with hello, Dolly. Yes. I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on these, but I did want to kind of go through each of them because Jen, you, tend to try to go to a show or two when you head back east for Christmas, right? Uh, If I fly through New York, I do, yeah. Okay. So whether it's one of these shows or not, and whether there's somebody in New York or going to New York for the holidays, I want to just kind of give some real quick reviews of some, not all of the shows, and I'll tell you why one of them um, in a minute. But uh, going through a couple of these, first off, I saw Hello, Dolly. I saw it on a Tuesday night. So that means I saw it with the incredible two-time Tony winner, Donna Murphy, instead of Bette Midler. Trust me, if you see it with Donna, you will not be disappointed. She is absolute perfection. Um, Jen, you are a huge Hello, Dolly fan. Um, uh, Maybe not as much as Hamilton, but pretty close, I think. And it's just an unbelievably spectacular perfect musical theater, musical comedy production. There is nothing about this show that you're like, eh, that's kind of disappointing. Even David Hyde Pierce, who's not the best singer in the world and not someone that I would have expected to play Horace Vandergelder. He's fantastic. The costumes are great. The staging is great. The singing's great. The choreography is great. Um, a plus production in every imaginable way. Do you have any hello Dolly questions or anything? Since I know you, you are such a big fan. I just want to know when she appears at the top of the stairs at the Harmonia Gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm tearing up thinking about it. What was the <laughs> atmosphere like in the in the theater at that moment? Oh, so good. I mean, one, it's a different audience. I think, from what I understand, it's a different audience on Tuesday nights when Donna Murphy does the show. She only does Tuesday nights or when Bet is out of town. When Bet is there, it is very much a let's go see Bet Midler thing. The people who go on Tuesday nights are people who more appreciate the show and are more theater fans than Bette Midler fans and people who appreciate Donna Murphy. And the people who, I mean, heck, anybody who knows who Donna Murphy is, is probably more of a theater fan than someone who knows who Bette Midler is. Um, But that's not taking anything away from Donna. She's a two-time Tony winner. She was the voice of the mother in Tangled. She's done all these different things. She was on Mercy Street on PBS a couple years ago. She's fantastic. But the energy for that was almost like the audience was saying we see you we know that this is this iconic moment in this show and we appreciate the fact that we are seeing you in this role and we are not disappointed by that um the the grosses have not been nearly as good for donna murphy when she does a week when bets on vacation the 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 grosses are up in the 
$2.5 million range for a week when Bet's in. They're down to the, the, about the $900,000 range when Don is in there. That's a huge discrepancy. Still not a bad number, but the people that were there, they, it felt like they were there was an outpouring of support for Donna Murphy in everything that she did, especially in those iconic moments, um, not only when she walks down the stairs, but in the very beginning when she comes on stage. And you know the show better than I do. I don't know if the way she comes on stage in this production is the way she always does it, so I don't want to spoil it. But things like that, just great, huge ovations for one of the stage's best living musical theater actresses. <sighs> okay. Um, so you saw Miss Saigon once on this island. The band's visit in Dear Evan Hansen. Is that correct? Yes. Um, saw Dear Evan. Hansen. What's interesting about this actually is every single one of those shows, except for the band's visit, which I saw the performance before opening. We saw it on Wednesday night and it opened on Thursday night. Um, every single other one of those shows, I saw either an alternate or an understudy in one of the main roles. I saw Donna Murphy for, uh, in hello Dolly. I saw Michael Lee Brown, who is, uh, who was Ben Platt's, uh, alternate Ben's left the show. Now, obviously for Hamilton, I saw, uh, Javon McFerrin, as I mentioned before and Miss Saigon, I did not see Eva Noble Zeta, which was the only really disappointing thing is because the only reason I wanted to see Miss Saigon, I like Miss Saigon, but I wanted to see that show specifically to see Eva, uh, because I'm a big fan of hers, but she was out. And then on once on this Island, one of the, are you, are you fairly familiar with once on this Island, Jen? No, not even a little bit. No. Oh, that's surprising. Um, once on this Island is, um, a story, it's a story within a story, and part of the, the story that's being told centers on four gods kind of playing in the lives of a certain young girl on the island of Haiti. And one of the gods is normally played by Quentin Earl Darrington, who was recently in Cats, and he's this huge, great you know, performer, but, um, we, he was out, he was sick and we, we saw like the fourth performance, um, and he was actually already sick. And the fact that an understudy was able to go on that quickly and do the show, Jen, you know, understudy rehearsals don't usually happen that early in a production. Um, generally they don't happen really until you're open already. So kudos, um, to them for being able to do that. And I'm, I'm opening my playbill now to make sure that I get the, uh, the correct person. Cause I want to shout out this, um, um, this understudy's name, but you know, to have it be so seamless was was pretty fantastic. So that was he played Agui. So that was T. Oliver Reed. T. Oliver Reed was fantastic as Agui, and um, so that was really neat. And you know, Jen, I like I said, I was a little disappointed about Miss Saigon, but especially over on today on Broadway, we talk about all the time at how much we love alternates and we love seeing understudies because. Oftentimes, those are the stars of the future. And to be able to see an understudy, while maybe disappointing if you're there to see a certain star, um, there's nothing generally, it's almost never a step down. And in some cases, it's maybe not a step up, but it's a step sideways because you see something a little different than what you would have seen with a traditional person in that role. I do have to go agree because I went to see Rent back in the OBC days and um, Mm -hmm. Adam Pascal was out and his understudy was Norbert Leo Butts. Who? I'm not familiar. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, so another, it, was okay. it was okay. Yeah, exactly. Another co-star of Donna Murphy's on the TV show Mercy Street, by the way. Just throwing that out there. Actually, you know what? This is completely off the beaten path. But one of my favorite understudy experiences involved Norbert Leo Butts. I went to see the Broadway production of Catch Me If You Can whenever that was on Broadway a few years ago. And one of the reasons I wanted to see it, I mean, I love Aaron Tveit. I love Norbert Leo Butts. But I love... Carrie uh, Butler's song in that show. Oh, and I don't, I didn't prep this. I don't remember when I was a child. Anyway, so she was out. Carrie Butler was out. And whoever this person was, and I have the name somewhere, but I don't know it off the top of my head. um, I believe it was her first time going on for the role. And I was in like the third row. I sat across the aisle. I was on third row on the aisle. And across from me on the aisle was Jeff Foxworthy and his family. Um, But anyway, so I was in the third row, had a great seat. And at the curtain call, this understudy was next to Norbert Leo Butts. And after they all bowed, he just looked over to her and said, I am so proud of you. So I don't, I mean, I'm tearing up just talking about it now and getting chills with that, but like to be able to see that and to see the, the recognition from this guy who would go on to win his second Tony for that role to recognize and appreciate and to congratulate this young kid making this huge milestone in her career and to, to tell her, that he appreciated that and understood how much work that takes and how much nerves she had to go through. That was really moving. And that's one of my favorite, favorite moments ever in a theater as an audience member. Yeah. Understudies are more unsung heroes in the theater world. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Jen, anything else for my New York trip, anything unshow related that um, you have any burning questions? Oh, I don't want to talk a whole lot. I, let me talk about some of these other shows. Dear Evan Hansen, you don't need me to tell you that it's it's really good. The Band's Visit is an interesting one. Uh, it got these great reviews. It's going to win the Tony for Best Musical this year. I was a little underwhelmed by it just because uh, I, may, I, I think it suffered from what I mentioned that I was afraid about with Hamilton, that it's gotten such good praise both from its off-Broadway run and it, and it was in previews when I saw it. I was a little disappointed, but the lead performance in that show is played by a woman named Katrina Link. Absolutely magnetic. Like you can't, you can't take your eyes off her. She's fantastic. If you watched Indecent on PBS last week or two weeks ago, by the time this comes out, she was also the lead in that. Just, you can't not watch her. Once on this island, I mentioned, you know, that's on understudy. I don't want to talk about that one publicly uh, too much because even though I did pay for a ticket, um, I only saw the fourth preview, and it's not even open yet, so I don't feel comfortable talking about that. But if you do have specific questions about that show, tweet me or something, because I, I don't have a problem talking about it directly, but I didn't think it was kosher to kind of broadcast stuff from the fourth preview. But I will say, uh, it's good. Uh, it's 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 very good. I think uh, Michael Arden is a genius as a director, and being able to see Leia Salonga on stage is like nothing else you will not be disappointed uh with this one at all sounds like a hell of a trip yeah it was amazing i mean like literally i've already started planning um a trip for march um i've got tickets to see mean girls carousel and my fair lady and i'll be adding some other things i'm 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 gonna be there the week that frozen opens so i'm definitely gonna see frozen um and hopefully do some podcasting with princess anna patty murin um but I don't know how any trip can live up to this because I saw such great stuff and so many great people in such great roles. So I'm really looking forward to it. But Jen, it did made me think as we were texting about um, Hamilton after the show, as I was walking to the subway and on the subway and we were uh, texting about it. I feel like at some point 
we need to figure out a way to be in New York at the same time and see a couple of shows together and do an in-person podcast recording to discuss them. I know that's hard with both of our schedules, but sometime we need to make that happen because we don't, you know, seeing movies and TV shows and talking about them is one thing, but being able to experience the same theatrical production where that's really where our backgrounds and our love lies. I think that'd be pretty special. And I hope that we can do that at some point. It's cute that we're being all warm and fuzzy and like sweet to each other when we're about to throw <laughs> yeah. down. <laughs> the next section is not going to have any of this at all. But I do I, I do hope that we can do that at some point. Like we talked about off air, a lot of the people that I work with and do podcasts with that live in New York, I've never met before in my entire life until this trip. James Marino from Broadway Radio, uh, my co-worker and uh, co-host of The Pottest Couple, Alan Henry, I met. I met another couple Broadway World colleagues. I met Patrick Hines from The Theater People and Broadway Backstory and True Crime Obsessed. We had dinner. Robbie Rizell from Broadway Records and a guest on every theater podcast. I finally met him. So I feel like it's time to bring some slip in-person stuff to the forefront, to the schedule here at some point. That'd be fun. When I was a child, my eyes were clear. I saw the good side, but that's the kind of second sight that doesn't last too long. But when I was lost, I heard a voice that brought me healing. That's the kind of special hope he brought me with his song. People only saw the doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. But he was just a lonely little boy to me. With his sweet and gentle touch, he sure unlocked my So in return, I surely want to help to set him free. Yet now I want to see him fly, fly. I'll be your alibi, my baby. Fly, fly, fly away. All right, so Jen, as you mentioned, no, no more kid gloves. No more agreeing, no more warm and fuzzy tearing up in goosebumps. We're going to talk about some superheroes, and um, this—I don't—I wouldn't say that we had an argument on Twitter about these two recent superhero movies, but we definitely had a disagreement. Uh, and these two superhero movies are, of course, Marvel's Thor Ragnarok and the DC Cinematic Universe's Justice League. Jen, I. I it's hard for me to kind of get into this stuff because I don't think we're as far apart as as you think we are. Um, we're, we're definitely not on the same page here, uh, but let's do a real quick review of each one. You preferred Thor Ragnarok. I kind of at least the rest thought, of America. Yes, I kind of liked Justice League either as much as Thor, if not a little more, but I have specific reasons that I think you will understand. But so why don't you real quick, give a spoiler light review for Thor Ragnarok. So we know what we're talking about and I'll do the same for justice league. Does that work? Sure. All right, go for it. Um, I don't know a lot of names, so there's going to be a lot of this guy and that guy and actors names. 
So I can fill in where you want. I can fill in if you need yeah, me to. So Thor, he Chris is, Hemsworth. Yeah, everyone knows who Chris Hemsworth is. Okay. Okay. So Thor, um, he is. I don't. I didn't see the second Thor, so it begins in a place where I don't really understand. But Thor's not in a good place where it starts. Understatement. When he gets back to Ragnarok, his troubles. His nope. troublesome. Nope. No, see, here's the problem. Ragnarok is the thing that is set to destroy his home planet. His home oh, planet is see, Asgard. That. Yeah, Asgard is his home okay. planet. I'm I'm totally playing the role of the of the dumb non-comic <laughs> That's okay. loving girl. You're forgiven. So when he gets back to his home planet, his you know, hijinks loving brother Loki, um hottie actor Tom Hiddleston, and um, is kind of running the planet and he's being mean to his dad and he has his dad like on lockdown because he's sick and Loki wants to take it over. And his dad reveals to them that, um, surprise, you have an evil sister. And once I die, she comes out of her crazy prison and she's going, she's basically the angel of death and she's going to take over the world and you guys have to save the world at its basics. The evil sister is played by Kate Blanchett, who is a just never fails in anything she does. She nope. can just stand there for three hours and do nothing and she should win an Oscar. <laughs> um, and then we, you know, we meet up with the Hulk in a surprise little Kate, uh, arena match and a couple new characters, dear white peoples. Um, don't know her name. She's fantastic. Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie. Tessa Thompson. Yes. She was also uh, she- in uh, Westworld as well. Yes. Um, so they join up with a bunch of other people and they decide to take down Ragnarok. Is that right? Well, not – I mean, Ragnarok is like a prophecy, a, a prophecy foretold that will bring the end of the world. Um, Hela is Kate Blanchett's character. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's totally what I said. Yes, exactly. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's time for Ragnarok. Oh, well done. I like that a lot. Okay. So you get the basic idea. Yes. And Chris Hemsworth's hot. Tom Hiddleston's hot. Move. Yeah. Okay. So in Justice League, very similarly, at the beginning of this, folks ain't in a good place. This comes on the heels of the really god-awful Batman v. Superman, in which Superman died at the hands of Doomsday. Uh, so as Justice League starts, we start to see that something, I don't know, Steppenwolf, which I thought is either a band or a theater company. Steppenwolf is this mythical god type thing, and he's trying to get these three boxes to be able to have all of this incredible power. Batman, with Superman being dead, is trying to assemble a team, the Justice League, to battle Steppenwolf. He already knows Wonder Woman fairly well from Batman v Superman. They try to bring on board uh, Aquaman, Cyborg, and the Flash. Spoiler alert here, just like in the comic books, Doomsday might have killed Superman, but he doesn't stay dead. They bring Superman back to life, um, and then they battle Steppenwolf to kind of, uh, you know, save the world, which is not all that surprising from a superhero movie. That's what they do. So, Jen, those are the basic plot points for these two movies. My contention is a very unpopular one. Pretty much everybody who's seen these has raved about Thor Ragnarok and not liked Justice League. Some reviews have been more positive than others, but for the most part, they've been 
on the negative to at least mixed level. You have not gotten very many, if any, raves about the ju- about Justice League, and I don't think it deserves a rave at all. I do think, though, Jen, you have to kind of grade grade these things on a curve. Thor Ragnarok is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I think has done some of the best action movies, comedy movies um, in the past 40, 50 years. And they've been doing these for, you know, however many, 15 years now. Um, They're great. So you expect great things from those. The DC Cinematic Universe, save Wonder Woman, has been terrible. It's just been awful. So I... I went in not expecting more from Thor, and I don't know that it got it. I went in expecting nothing from Justice League, and I got more than I got, and we can or got more than I expected. So we can talk about some of those. But you loved Thor Ragnarok, so tell me what I'm missing from this movie. Um, a soul. That's what you're missing. Because <laughs> um, and Chris Hemsworth has said this widely that. Uh, he was playing Thor and everyone hated Thor. It was getting boring. It wasn't anything. And he was listening to Kevin Smith on a podcast and he said, they need to reinvent this character because there's so much to offer. So they bring in Taika Waititi, who is one of my favorites because what we do in the shadows is seriously one of my favorite movies ever. And this guy takes on a whole new take. Uh, Let's put some humor in it. Let's give these guys an actual personality and it works And you're wrong if you think it doesn't. And I hate saying that because it's your opinion and you can think what you want. But all (laughs) those guys have perfect comedic timing. It was so – it just made all of their characters ten times more interesting. They they took a swing and it was a home run. I think Thor was, was very funny. I don't think it was unfunny. I thought that there were just moments when they tried too hard on some of the jokes and they didn't land for me. They didn't land for my brother, who I saw the movie with. Um, I felt like it was trying to force humor in parts where it didn't belong. I, I will give credit to my brother. He's the one who said they're trying too hard first because in that opening scene, like you said, Thor finds himself in a bad place and there's a little bit that happens there and we don't want to spoil it. The first time it happened, my brother goes, oh, God, they're trying too hard. And my brother is not a film critic by any means. Um, he enjoys movies, but he thought that. Another moment when I thought that happened is, Jen, they referenced a, I mean, not referenced, they used a song from a very popular children's movie musical in a scene. And I was like, what? And really? That's what we're getting in this movie? I That rubbed me a little bit the wrong way because while I thought it was funny, it didn't, it just didn't fit to me the humor that they used, which admittedly it was funny at times. And I laughed a lot. It just didn't seem to fit with the movie and the universe that we were in. It felt very uneven to me when they went from these goofy things, the goofy bro stuff between Thor and the Hulk and Thor and Loki. And then you have Jeff Goldblum being all Jeff Goldblumy, And then you go to, oh, that's right. Can't Planchette's about to destroy everything in the universe. It just felt very uneven to me. Well, I'll do respect to the brothers Tamanini. Shout out to Ryan, who I've never met either. Thank you. But incorrect. They tried to reinvent the universe. They tried to set a new tone, and they did it. And Jeff Goldblum, he is the, the male Kate Cap- Blanchett. He yes. does no wrong. He's Again. wonderful. Yes. Can we say in two words, Matt Damon. That's it. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's, it was yeah, that's really so funny. so entertaining yeah. from beginning to end. And I... 
never once looked up and thought, Whew, they're trying real hard here. It was enjoyable. Yeah, well, not only uh, uh, not only uh, Matt Damon, but you also had in the same scene that we see a cameo from Matt Damon. You also had Sam Neill from uh, the uh, uh, the Jurassic Park movies one and three. So another Jeff Goldblum connection there. He was also in that scene as well. But um, and Luke Hemsworth. Let's let's give the, oh, the third Hemsworth a, a oh, shout out. I didn't even notice that. Yes, Luke Hemsworth oh. played Thor. Nice. Very well done. Yes. Um, so, Jen, I, it surprises me a little that you are praising Thor because it tried to reinvent what the movie franchise, the Thor franchise, was doing. Justice League, I felt, kind of tried to do the same thing. And that's why I appreciated it more. It's a little bit of a different situation where you talked about Kevin Smith being the impetus for wanting to change where this Thor series was going. The change came when Zack Snyder, who was the original director, actually had to pull out after filming had already begun. He had a, um, the details haven't been revealed, but it was a family emergency and he was unable to continue shooting. Joss Whedon, who has experience with superheroes considering he wrote the first Avengers movie. He co-wrote the screenplay for, for the justice league. He stepped in as director. And I think to me, that's where the changes started happening. You saw more jokes. I thought Ezra Miller as the flash was very funny. Um, you, I don't think you did, but here's the thing. The reason that I liked this movie as much as I did, I personally could have done without Batman. I'm I'm over Batman. At least this approach to Batman. We don't need to keep doing the Christopher Nolan Batman in perpetuity. There's a little more humor there. I get it. But I would be fine if Batfleck or whatever they're calling him just goes away. Let's leave Batman on the shelf for a while. And I would have said the same thing for Superman because I thought the Man of Steel was awful. I thought Batman v Superman was awful. I have nothing against Henry Cavill. But it's not the Superman that I love. Superman, to me, has always been my favorite superhero. I, I don't remember. Maybe it was from the first Superman movie, but I think probably more from Lois and Clark. And there's when Superman is right, and it goes from Lois and Clark into Smallville, which I watched every episode in its 11-year run on, um, there's a hope and an optimism and a joy in that character. That was non-existent in the first two Superman iterations of this DC Cinematic Universe. When you get Joss Whedon in there, it seems like they're trying to rewrite history and make him into that retroactively. So when he's dead, everyone says, well, Superman's the the inspiration we need. Um, Wonder Woman talks about the fact that, oh, I uh, he was such an inspirational leader. I want to be like him. They beat you over the head with it. And that, to me, felt like a course correction to them wanting to try to get the character back where he belongs. And to me, that's exciting because he's my favorite character. I also found it funny. Uh, I know you didn't as much. I know uh, Jason Momoa, I thought was pretty funny. Um, I, I, like I said, Ezra Miller was funny. I think Gal Gadot is amazing. So I, I just really enjoyed it. The, the, the villain makes no sense. And I don't care about the villain whatsoever. And I could have really done without, sorry, Amy Adams and Diane Lane unnecessary, but it's going in the right direction for me. It gives me hope that this can be something better than it has been in the past. 
See, now everything you said about Thor is what I think about Justice League. It was a swing and a miss. <laughs> like, I thought it was very uneven. I thought it was very obvious where Joss came in and made some changes yes, because agreed. Zack Snyder versus Joss Whedon is not even a close competition <laughs> no, with all due respect all. to his family. But I did think Ezra was funny. I did think that Jason Momoa's, Mo, Momoa was wonderful. Um, Ray Fisher, get more of the stage actors in there because clearly – they're better than the Batflex of the world. Um, <laughs> we were torn between um, Batfleck and uh, shooting is over, so I'm going to let myself go, Fleck. Ooh, ouch. And maybe, like, let's edit that a little bit. I'm all for letting yourself go because it's Thanksgiving week and we're going <laughs> to we're gonna pour it on. But the editing was embarrassing between the round face round and, and the fit face. Can we talk about the freaking mustache CG? Um, like, are you kidding? Yeah, that's it was weird. Just, so, it was so sloppy. It was such a push to get it out by this date. And I don't accept your excuse that you're grading on a curve because they proved that they can do it with Wonder Woman. They proved it. So they have no excuses anymore. I'm sorry. Well, I don't know when the shooting happened with those movies, but I have a feeling that the groundwork was laid for Justice League before Wonder Woman, just because they started setting the stage for it in Batman v Superman. But I agree. I, it was uneven. It was sloppy. If you don't know what she's talking about with the mustache, they when Joss came in, they had to do some reshoots. But Henry Cavill had already gone on to start working on the new Mission Impossible movie, and he had grown a mustache in the studio doing Mission Impossible would not let him shave it. So he's shooting the Superman stuff with a mustache, and then they had to CGI remove it, and it's awful. I have to admit, I didn't notice it a lot in the theater, but I noticed it. I, I definitely noticed it. But then when you see some of the still frames um, that people have grabbed from the film, it's horrific. Like he has four lips in some things. It's going to be a really weird thing on DVD when people are able to stop it on single frames because it's pretty bad. But I... I can't argue with anything. It is very uneven. It is very obvious when Joss comes in and takes over. But all of the problematic things about Joss Whedon that we've learned recently aside, we love Joss Whedon. I mean, I I, I think I can speak for you. We love Joss Whedon. We love Buffy. We we love um, Dr. Horrible. We love everything he's done. You know, I love Dollhouse and Firefly and all these things. But that's a positive to me that they said, who do we want to take this over? We've got Joss Whedon in. Let's let him steer this ship and hopefully steer it in the right direction. As as people say all the time, it's never too late to do the right thing. And I feel like it's really late into this thing for DC, but they finally did the right thing with Joss Whedon. They, I, I just think that it was too uneven. I, what I'm arguing with you about is that you're saying Thor was or Justice League was better because I I won't accept that. I would happily see a cyborg movie or an Aquaman movie before I would see a Justice League movie again because the whole time it, it seemed like it wasn't about getting the league together. It was about reviving Superman so that he could tell him what to do. And it just felt like it was just really weird. And like you said, Steppenwolf came out of nowhere. Like there was no story. It was just like, well, here's a villain. Let's fight him. Well, and that's one of the, I definitely think one of the biggest problems about this is that when they did the Avengers, everybody already had an introduction. Obviously, you know, there was no ind independent uh, Black Widow movie or Hawkeye movie. The Hulk movies are part of, I think the, whatever one was the last one is part of this Marvel Cinematic Universe, but there's contractual things why 
Hulk can't have his own movie anymore. But anyway, they built up to this. There was no build up um, for the Justice League. You are absolutely right, and I, I personally would be fine if the if the Justice League sequel didn't feature Batman or Superman at all. I would be fine with Cyborg, Aquaman, uh, The Flash, and Wonder Woman, with Wonder Woman leading it. Um, Maybe throw in Green Lantern um, or some of the other random members, um, Hawkman or somebody else, throw them in with uh, the current characters because I think that would give it a different sensibility. It would give it a different focus. Having Wonder Woman in charge, which they did kind of leave the groundwork for, uh, I think would give it a little bit more life. And definitely, again, Zack Snyder, much love, bro. But it, that's not the vision that people want to see anymore. Zack Snyder, uh, no love, bro. You know, good luck with your family. But um, leave this leave this to the Whedons of the world. Because if, if he can dig it out of the hole, I have a lot of faith in that. But yeah. it was not a better movie than Thor. Okay, well... Agree to disagree. I mean, I, I don't think it was much better, but I thought it was a little better. I, I left the theater saying that, so uh, um, I'll stick with it. Although I, you know, I think my, mine might be from a sentimentality perspective a little more than yours was. But all right, Jen, real it, real quick, I want to run through some other movies and TV shows that we've been watching. Um, why don't you go first? You've been watching a ton of TV, not seeing a lot of movies. I've been seeing more movies and not watching a lot of TV lately. So let's break this up. And why don't you hit me with a few TV things real quick that you think have been really stellar so far this fall? Well, uh, first of all, I would like to say that I got into the TV show uh, Search Party which is on TBS. It is starring Ali Shawkat from Arrested Development fame. And it's basically a 10 episode limited series. Well, not limited series. That's incorrect. It's about um, a mystery. And she sees that a, a friend of hers from college is missing. And, and she's just at a point in her life where not a lot of things are going well. And she decides to fixate on it. And her and her friends try and solve the case. Um, it's, you know, I love the true crime. You know, I love the mysteries. And it's just a really fun show. It, it's I, I just discovered it. I binge watched season one and then season two premiered on Sunday. And it was really great. Um, also, Mr. Robot this season has really been stellar. I don't know if you're caught up or even started no, yet. No, haven't even started. But I, I definitely will. Um, it's really, really really well done the addition of bobby cannavale with well anytime you add bobby cannavale to anything it gets infinitely better stage actor but they have one episode especially which is not a spoiler but the entire episode is in one shot and it's so well done and it it's not just a gimmick it actually works with where the plot is at that time and it's literally it was it was shown without commercials and it's just 45 minutes of attention build and they they work with the music and they work with the camera shots and Hmm. it's so well done it was so impressive um so i'm really kind of blown away by mr robot this year and everything's kind of going on hiatus right now which is always fun because then i can get back into movies Uh, i just got movie pass highly recommend all y'all out there and then we'll get ready for the big January boom when everything starts coming back. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen a few um, Oscar, I think probably, if not Oscar, at least Golden Globe contenders here recently. And I want to run through them real quick. I've seen some other things. Um, I saw Battle of the Sexes, monumentally disappointed with that. Um, I saw The Foreigner with Jackie Chan and Pierce Brosnan, 
it looked really interesting to me, but it was pretty cliche and pretty much what you would expect from aging action stars. Yeah, so both of those were fine. But the three Oscar contenders that I've seen, I'll take them in in order that I saw them. The first, and I I know we'll probably talk about these in depth, Jen, after you see them. But the first one I saw was called The Florida Project. Um, And I think we've mentioned this before. It's, It's basically set like two miles from where I live um, down 192 towards Kissimmee here in um, here in central Florida. And it centers on a little girl and her mother and they live in one of these really cheap hotels. They live there. Um, There's a lot of basically everybody who is at this hotel lives there because they can't afford a real place to live. It's I don't know that I will appreciate this movie as much as other people just because I literally drive by that place multiple times a week. So to see all of these settings and they walk down to different places, like I, I know these places, like I've been to some of these stores that they, they show. Um, it was a little harder for me to watch than, than I think it's probably intended to be. It's a hard watch anyway, because these people have pretty tough lives. Um, but it was a little more because of that. It probably hit me more, than it should have to be able to appreciate it as a whole. I will say the acting's fantastic and it William Defoe out of nowhere plays this really sweet character um and he's really great. So um I, I highly recommend that and I'll be interested to hear your perspective Jen because I think you'll have a little bit more distance to it. Uh so you can kind of give a different perspective. Another one Jen that I know you are super excited to see and uh I was kind of hoping you'd seen it already but is the Greta Gerwig movie Lady Bird. It has basically an entire cast of theater folks um seer sharon and laurie metcalf tracy letts lucas hedges timothy chalamet beanie feldstein who i saw in hello dolly um uh, stephen mckinley henderson lois smith and many many more it is i called it a i'll just say in my review for broadway world I, i called it a masterpiece it is so simple and it is so not what you expect from a coming-of-age movie. A coming-of-age movie, I think, for a lot of times recently, Jen, when you hear that, you hear about, you think of these young people going through addictions and people dying or they're being sexually assaulted. There's none of that in this movie. It's just simple, but it's real. It feels grounded. Their characters are a little turned up. They're a little extreme, but because of the incredible acting from this entire cast it feels real and it feels authentic so it's not going to be a movie that blows you away you know lucas hedges was in manchester by the sea last year these could not be more different movies in terms of their presentation of their characters that one was punch you in the gut until you cry and then punch you in the face this is just kind of needle you until you feel the emotion um, so I think it's really, really good. I don't know if it's going to get a lot of Oscar contention as a film. Maybe some of the actors will, maybe Greta Gerwig will, but I think maybe in some of these other smaller awards, definitely like the independent spirit stuff, this one should get a lot of love. And then the last one that I saw was the disaster artist, uh, from the, from the Franco brothers. Um, it's really good. Um, it's really funny. It's really interesting. It's really compelling. But I would highly, highly, highly recommend seeing the movie The Room. This is the the making of the the story of the making of The Room. I did not see The Room beforehand, and I wish I had. It is not easy to find. It's not streaming anywhere. You can't buy the DVD. If you're going to watch it, you need to basically get 
uh, a torrent from somewhere or maybe you might get lucky and see it on YouTube, but apparently those things get taken down a lot. Um, I feel like I would have benefited from seeing that first. And Jen, you did recommend that. I just, I couldn't do it um, because the people that were there with me, um, they knew the room really well and they appreciated it a lot more than I did. Um, so I definitely recommend seeing the disaster artist, but only after you see the room. I'm genuinely looking forward to about 80% of those films you just said. Okay, I only said three, so I don't know how you get 80. Well, I guess I said two. Never said mind. I, said, I said five. You're right, you're right, you're right. Which one are you not looking forward to, The Foreigner? No, I actually wanted to see The Foreigner. I like Jackie Chan. Yeah, um, me too. The Battle of the Sexes doesn't really interest me because, spoiler alert, you know, that was kind of, you know, pretty well known when I was getting growing up. Yeah. So um, I'm okay with not seeing a fictionalized version of it. Yeah, it was disappointing. Like, I expected more out of Emma Stone and Steve Carell. But anyway. Jen, instead of doing our normal show and tell here to end an episode, because this is the night before Thanksgiving, for me, it is one hour and 52 minutes away from Thanksgiving here on the East Coast. We wanted to talk about some things that we are especially thankful for from a pop culture perspective. I don't know what yours are. You don't know what mine are. But I, from my point of view, I tried to do things that weren't the stuff we normally talk about. So I didn't want to say, oh, I love Jane the Virgin. Everybody who listens to this knows I love Jane the Virgin and it brings me joy. But I wanted to kind of do some things that were a little bit outside the norm. Maybe I've mentioned one of them before, but not really in depth. Uh, but there's some things that I, I want to turn you guys on to because they are really great and I've been enjoying them a lot lately. So Jen, I picked three, but you picked four. So why don't you go ahead and go first and get us started? Um, I am grateful for the movie Get Out. Um, I think it really um, kind of blew me away this year. And I love seeing people step outside of what they're known for and become known for something com like that no one was expecting. Right. And Jordan Peele's this well-known comedian, and he's a genius at sketch comedy. And there's loud people on my street. Right. <laughs> well, and now, and now he's the director of a documentary. Yeah, and he puts all this this work into this beautiful like uh dark horror parody kind of thing about scary rich white people which is frightening because it's not out of the realm of possibility at this point and the golden globes are like um let's let's put that in the musical or comedy category so dumb and so but his statement of course was y'all it's a documentary like I don't know. Jordan Peele, I think, has become a very important person in Hollywood. And I think that he refuses to let himself get put into a box. And I think he's going to continue to surprise people. And I think Get Out was just the beginning of that. And if you haven't seen it and you haven't been spoiled by it yet, inexplicably, see it before award show season because I have a feeling that's going to be the fodder for a lot of jokes. 
Uh, yeah, oh, definitely for a lot of jokes. Um, we've talked about that on here before. I, we both love it. Um, it's it's. Uh, I hesitate to say this, but it's almost a perfect movie. Um, it's so good on every imaginable aspect. So definitely something to, even though the uh, uh, the content isn't something that necessarily brings you joy, it is definitely something worthy of being thankful for. So very good, Jen. I like that one a lot. Um, my first one, I'm, I kind of went outside of the TV and movie genre for all of these, but I kept them pop culture related. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is my favorite podcast. It's my favorite podcast, um, even though I'm not involved with it at all. Um, that I've talked about before, the first podcast that I ever listened to was something called Downstage Center. It was uh, hosted by someone who I've become friendly with, Howard Sherman. At the time, he was the executive director of the American Theater Wing, um, and I heard it on Sirius XM, and then I found out what a podcast was because I didn't know what a podcast was, and I started downloading it. But the first one that I ever really kind of got into beyond that, the outside of that theater world, was a show called TLDR, and it was done by WNYC, and that show no longer exists because the two guys that hosted it, PJ Vote and Alex uh, Alex Goldman, went on to be really the first hosts of any podcast, uh, or one of the first ones, at Gimlet Media, which is now like the mega network for podcasts. And their new show is called Reply All, and I say new show because it started in 2014. But I love this show. They do about 40-some episodes a year, and it basically just talks about the weird stuff that happens on the internet, and it's really great. They've had some great episodes recently. Some that you really want to check out if you need an introduction is to into what into what Reply All does. Go back and look for um, a couple episodes here. One is, is called uh, The Case of the Phantom Caller. It's really, really interesting about this woman who keeps getting calls from an unknown number that sound like they're in an office and she can't figure out what's going on. There's another, it's actually two episodes called Long Distance, and then it has a second episode called Long Distance Part 2, where a phone scammer calls Alex, and not only does he end up talking to the phone scammer, he ends up meeting the phone scammer, and it's just brilliant. These guys are great at what they do. They also have funny bits called Yes, Yes, No, where their boss comes in and tries to have them explain to him things that he doesn't understand on the internet. It's just really great. Um, I really, really enjoy it. The last episode is called The Antifa Super Soldier Spectacular. Just It's fun stuff, uh, and I really, really enjoy it. So that's Reply All from Gimlet Media. I'm actually going to go with a podcast as well. Awesome. Go for it. I have discovered a new podcast. Um, I've actually been revisiting Harry Potter. I've decided to reread all the books. Oh, okay. And um, I only read them all once, and I wanted to kind of go back and read through them because when they first came out, it was such a like, I have to finish the book before the spoilers. So now just going back and rereading them. I found this podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and it is two um, people who are very skilled in literature. They're very um, – in academia, I believe they're professors or teachers. And what they're doing is they're going through Harry Potter chapter by chapter and examining it as if it were the Bible. So it's basically taking it, wow, um, analyzing the text. and they're, But they're looking at every single chapter through a theme. So when they begin a chapter, they tell you the theme and how they're going to read this chapter under that theme. For instance, the very first chapter of the very first book is called The Boy Who Lived. And the theme is Commitment. So they each tell a story about what commitment means to them, and then they read the chapter through the eyes of commitment. 
the second chapter is the vanishing glass and they view that through the theme of loneliness. So every, every episode, it's only like 25 minutes long. They're going chapter by chapter and really, really digging into the subtext under the text. And it is such a nerdy literature thing that it's just very gratifying and it's really analyzing the books and giving it a lot of credit for the writing. Wow. Yeah. Cause that's not how you normally hear about, J.K. Rowling's books being discussed. You don't hear them about them being discussed from a literature point of view. That's really, really interesting. I've never read the books, but if I had, this would totally be up my alley. Um, and interestingly enough, you went from my podcast recommendation to your podcast recommendation that's about literature. I'm going to stick with literature. Um, I have a book that I've been reading. Um, it's actually a book of poetry, believe it or not. Um, it's called The Princess Saves Herself in this one. It's from poet Amanda Lovelace. And basically what this is, it's they're short poems. They're broken down into four parts. The princess, the damsel, the queen, and you. The first three sections, the princess, damsel, and queen, are all about the the author's life. And then the last one is kind of like a, a not self-help, but it's like a this is how you should do things, inspirational type things. It's really good. I, I just randomly picked it up just because I loved the cover, which is it's just black with white text. And I saw it at Barnes and Noble and it was, um, you know, moderately priced. And so I, I got it and I've been reading through it. I'm not reading them necessarily like page, page, page one after the other, but I'm kind of going slowly. Um, but I'm almost done. And here's one that I'm going to read to you real quick. And um, it's not too long, but it's one of the longer ones in the book, actually. Write the story. Push your hands into the dirtiest parts of yourself. Take the rot and decay and turn it into nourishment and life. Water it and sing to it and show it sunlight. Grow a beautiful garden from your aching and teach yourself how to thrive from it write your story and then it's undersigned the sign you've been waiting for so it's just little things like that where um it's it's kind of a book about being proactive and even though it was published in february of 2016 i it feels very much of the moment of the hashtag i'm with her hashtag um and yet she persisted and all of the stuff that's going on now with um, the sexual harassment and assault stuff, it feels very poignant at this time. So The Princess Saves Herself in this one by Amanda Lovelace is highly recommended. You're so woke. <laughs> hey, I saw Get Out. I'm woke. I'm good with that. <laughs> um Going in the completely opposite direction, I wanted to say that I am very grateful for The Good Place. And here's why. <laughs> I don't think God, you're going to argue with me. No, God, yes. Um, first of all, there's not a lot of originality these days. And there's a TV, here comes a TV show that is 100% original. You, It's not predictable. There's never an instance when you're saying, I know exactly where they're going with this. I know exactly <laughs> what's once. going to happen. Oh, oh, no, I disagree, Jen. I've said that multiple times. And I've been wrong every yes. single damn time. The, the writers are crazy and I love it. And here they take a beloved national treasure that is Ted Danson, a Truth. lovely, lovely woman who's become famous in the last five to 10 years and surround them with unknown actors who haven't had big breaks yet. And they are wonderful Perfect. as an ensemble. They every every single role is vital. Everyone has a purpose. There's not anyone that's wasted. And within two short seasons, because they only have 13 episodes, which I think is perfect. I don't think they need the 22. I think the 13 is perfect for this kind of a story. Agreed. And 
they already gel as an ensemble. I already know exactly who all these people are. There are layers of them that are being revealed slowly, and they have the ability to make bad people endearing and vice versa. (laughs) And I'm just very grateful to see such originality and humor on television because I think it's pretty scarce these days, especially in comedies. It's not the same old thing every week. It's going somewhere and we just don't know where it's going. And it's been such a good journey so far. So I'm very grateful for the good place. Yeah. And very grateful that it's already been renewed for season three. So that, that news came down earlier this week. So that's very, very exciting. All right, my last one, because I did three, is is a cast album, actually. It's for a show that has not yet been on Broadway. The cast album was actually done as a, a live album of one of the show's performances when it was playing off-Broadway at the New York Theater Workshop. The show is actually, currently, as we speak in performances um, up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada at the Citadel Theater in what is being billed as a pre-Broadway run. The show is by Anais Mitchell, and she conceived it. She wrote the book, the music, and the lyrics, and and it was also originally uh, directed by Rachel Chavkin, who is also credited with helping come up with the concept. The musical is called Hadestown, and it's a kind of a bluesy, folky telling of the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, and it's not what you expect in any way, shape, or form. The cast in it is really interesting uh, and I'll kind of explain why Hades uh, the god of the underworld is played by Patrick Page who's this great Broadway guy just great voice he's amazing Persephone is played his wife is played by Amber Gray who was in Natasha Perry and the Great Comet of 1812 originally but then Hermes, who kind of pl- is the narrator of this show, when it was done off Broadway, it was played by uh, the character was played by a guy named Chris Sullivan. Jen, are you familiar with Chris Sullivan? I think you are, whether you know it or not, because he has a pretty common name. Uh, surprise me. Okay, Chris Sullivan, um, the reason he is not continuing with this production is twofold. He played Taserface in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and he also, Aww, he also he's plays... He's on This Is Us. Yes, he plays Toby on This Is Us. Um, he's got an amazing voice. He is such... He's so good um, in this show. He is not continuing with it, like I said, because he's got a huge TV show now. But another great actor named Kingsley Legs is replacing him for the Canadian premiere. If it goes to Broadway, I don't know who will take that role because Kingsley Legs will now be joining the Broadway uh, Broadway bound production of Pretty Woman. But... uh, a couple interesting things here for this show, Jen, is Orpheus was originally played by Damon Duano. He has been replaced for the Canadian production, and I assume will be replaced if the show comes to Broadway, by one Reeve Carney. And I assume you know who Reeve Carney is, right? That I do know. Yes. Reeve Carney was the original Peter Parker in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark on Broadway, but I think for me, I was blown away. He was one of my favorite parts of a really underappreciated show called Penny Dreadful that I really, really liked. I thought he was phenomenal as Dorian Gray 
uh, on that. And so he's doing that uh, this show, maybe coming to Broadway with it. But the cast album is just great. What's interesting, Jen, about this cast album is, is that it's a sung-through bluesy musical. And to get it down, they had to cut some things. So Anais Mitchell has talked about how it was very hard to pick what goes in there and what's not. But I actually kind of appreciate that because assuming this show does make it to Broadway, it'll have a full cast album. So I feel like kind of going back to what we talked about with Hamilton, I'm going to have even more surprises when I eventually see this show because I don't even know all the music. Like we said with Hamilton, you know the music, but there's still some things that surprise you with this I don't know all the music, so there'll be more things that would surprise me even if I did know it all, but then there'd still be new songs for me to discover. To discover. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens next with Hades Town, and I really, really enjoy the music uh, in this cast album as well. Okay, I'll check it out. What's next for you, Jim? What's your last one? Uh, I would like to say that I am grateful for David Cassidy. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> he was one of my first crushes when I was little if only by force, because uh, I shared a room with my sister and she had a poster of David and Sean Cassidy on our wall. So I was forced to be in love with him. Um, Damn, you are old. (laughs) I'm very, very old, very old, unapologetically. (laughs) Yeah. And um, the Partridge family is is good fun. You know, it's that 70s kitchen. I think I Love You always brings the house down at karaoke or on a dance floor when everyone's really drunk. But I think the thing that I like about him is that he always had the reputation for being a nice dude. And it seems like, you know, with these seventies idols, you know, they, some of them get a bad rap and some of them have rough childhoods and growing into adulthood. But there's a few of them that just sneak through that wind up being really nice guys. And he was one of them by all accounts. And it looks like he deteriorated pretty quickly because he stopped making appearances in February after he forgot the lyrics during a show and they diagnosed him with dementia, which was one of the things that his mother suffered for until she died. So he did deteriorate really quickly and passed away this week. So I just wanted to say that I was grateful for him just being one of those good guys in Hollywood because, boy, are we at a deficit these days. Jesus. Yes, we are. My Lord. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, Godspeed to uh, to David Cassidy. And uh, I was listening to 70s on 7 on Sirius XM, and they were doing a kind of a retrospective, doing a lot of the Partridge Family songs there recently. And that wouldn't necessarily be the kind of music that I would normally listen to. But when you when they put them all together, like there are some actually some really good songs from the Partridge Family. So um, to this weekend would be a good time if you haven't kind of gone back and re-listened to some of those songs, especially in light of what happened to him. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a, would not be a waste of your time by any stretch of the imagination. And shout out to his daughter who is currently on, is it Arrow? Oh yeah. Katie Cassidy. I didn't know that was yeah. his daughter. Yeah. She's died and come back to life on that show. I believe she is now playing, the silver black siren silver siren she used to be the uh, the black canary um the her sister on the show is played by katie lots she is plays the white canary um the captain of the uh the wave rider on dc's legends of tomorrow so yeah i don't watch well, arrow, you, you just you just said a lot of words that made no sense so yeah good and I, don't, I don't watch arrow but uh, it's the only one of those shows that i don't watch but they are having their big crossover event coming up this week so starting on monday night with supergirl but 
Anyway, all right. Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway World Some Like It Pop Podcast. You can find all of our episodes on broadwayworld.com, and you can get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So make sure to subscribe, download, and share the gift that is Some Like It Pop. You got family coming over this weekend, coming into the holidays for Christmas and Hanukkah and everything else. Tell them about us. We'd appreciate it. You can also do our egos a favor and follow the show on Twitter at SLIP Podcast and go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us, please, and thank you. We'll be back in January. We'll do our traditional best movies and best TV shows of 2017. All right, so until next time, whenever that may be, we'll see you around the Broadway world. <laughs>